and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. Our regular podcast is back for this month and it's summer, so we're going to have a bit of sustainable vacation updates for you later on. And we've also got an interview this month with Oliver Hardy, director at Numis. But before we go into that, we are, as always, going to chat about some of the biggest news stories this week. So with me, as always, is Natalie Kenway, Global Head of ESG Insights at ESG Clarity. We're going to stray a little bit from the usual, because we always end up talking about regulation, as those are always our biggest and most popular stories. So we're going to talk about fund launches, another big and popular area this month. Yes, it certainly has been. We um, have been writing a few stories about sort of product developments and at the start of last month, I spoke to Janice Henderson about the opportunities they're finding in the fund space. And they had some niggles around the fact that lots of the funds that are being launched at the moment are global sustainable funds. And they really do want exposure to more regional equity funds or fixed income funds, but with that ESG stance. Um, and they're saying that when they're sort of moving from a standard risk-rated portfolio, it's really hard to translate that over into an ESG portfolio. So if you have a Japanese fund in your standard portfolio, and then you need to find a Japanese ESG fund, it's really, really difficult. So instead, that Japanese ESG fund gets replaced with a global ESG fund, and therefore that exposure to Japan is therefore diluted. So um, it's, it's interesting because it feels like we all we do is seem to write up fun launches. But um, and also in the Morningstar report um, that looked at global sustainable fund flows for Q2, it did note a slowdown in the number of products being brought to the market. It's still a high number, but a slower number than was brought to the market in Q1. But you, you've covered some, um, some new fun launches recently as well, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, it is interesting. Um, I, I feel like once uh, you'd have that conversation with Janet Henderson, it really brought home um, this point and something a lot of people are talking about. I think even in the global ESG summit that we did a couple of months ago with the UN Capital Development Fund, um, you know, my panel was all on products and your selectors were saying, hey, we, need, we need more of a range. In our magazine in July that we did, which was all about impact investing, we had a look at some of the top impact funds and, you know, of course, they're all global equity funds, right? Um, makes sense. It's a smaller area, but yeah, I feel like we, we are starting to notice this now, aren't we? Yeah, I think there are, there are some more innovative products coming through. And I do talk about this in the interview with um, Oliver Hardy at Numis. Um, he mentions that there, there is some innovation coming through and what we've covered recently um an ETF that invests in the 100 most impactful companies in Europe. That sounds quite unique to me. And some other EM impact bonds, climate transition, real asset funds, multi-asset funds, high yield corporate bond ETFs. So they're not all global equity funds, but obviously these funds need to build up track records. And yeah, it, it will take some time, I think, before they're, they're sort of absorbed by the market. But yeah, let's get on to the interview with Oliver then, if that sounds really interesting. I hope you enjoy and do stay tuned at the end for a little bit of relief and some more sustainable staycation. 
Hello, I am Natalie Kenway, Global Head of ESG Insights at ESG Clarity. And for the August episode of ESG Out Loud, I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Hardy, a director at Numis and responsible for the ESG initiatives for the business. But I'll let him explain more about his role. Oliver, thanks for taking the time to chat. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Great, thank you. And so first of all, can you pre- briefly tell us, so I'm going to start that again. So first of all, can you briefly tell our listeners a bit more about your role at Numis? Sure. Well, I've been at Numis for over 13 years now. It's been a really exciting uh, time at the business as it's grown uh, and the time certainly absolutely flown by. Um, I sit within the investment banking team, where as a department we look after circa 200 companies listed here in the UK. Uh, and we look after them as financial advisor and corporate broker. Uh, we're the largest and leading bank in that regard in terms of advising companies right across the market cap spectrum, from the large and mid caps all the way down to the small caps as well. Uh, I sit within the building and property team, so a hugely important sector when it comes to decarbonisation and how the economy is going to achieve net zero. Uh, and we advise companies right across the built environment industry, so house builders, developers, construction and materials firms all the way through to the REITs and the real estate operators as well. Uh, I also head up the ESG initiative here at Numis. Uh, it's an area that's getting a lot of interest from our corporate clients uh, and is something that the firm's really passionate about and behind. So uh, really pleased to talk to you about it today. Fantastic. It sounds, you've got, it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy there. That's um, for sure. So- <laughs> so I mean the background notes that you sent me you said you spend a lot of time advising listed companies on their sustainable journey could you sort of give us a brief um sort of some, explain some of your must-haves that um when you're advising companies things that they need to have in in terms of this sustainable transition sure well look, I think over the past 12 to 24 months there's been a real drive by companies to focus on ESG Mm-hmm. and sort of sustainability in a broader context. Uh, and I think as with a number of other sort of structural trends, the COVID pandemic has really accelerated the focus you know, on this area. You know, yeah. we, we see a real spectrum of companies across the market in terms of how sophisticated or advanced they are on ESG. And there's some fantastic real forward thinking that's happening uh, with companies that are well advanced uh, and really thinking ahead. And there's also companies that are just starting out on this journey and a real mix in between. But I would definitely say that, you know, pretty much all companies now are on the journey in some form. And it is a journey. There's no perfect ESG stock or strategy. And it takes real time and effort to prepare and articulate and evolve an ESG strategy. But three sort of buzzwords that we tend to use when advising companies are materiality, authenticity and deliverability. And just touching on on each of those, so materiality, you know, companies really have to prioritise and focus on those areas that have the biggest impact and present the biggest risks and opportunities for them and their stakeholders. It's really, really important. Um, Authenticity, you know, it's all about being credible and ensuring that the plans and strategy being put in place are of real substance and have buy-in across the whole organisation. You know, if a company comes out with plans or targets or disclosure that's not authentic and doesn't have internal support, it's going to become obvious to investors quite quickly and the company is going to lose its credibility. Um, worth saying that obviously every sector and company is different and the strategy and the plans that are put in place have to really reflect the people, the business 
and the issues being faced. So authenticity is really key. You can't just copy and paste what a competitor or a peer is doing. And lastly, deliverability. You know, this is an extension of authenticity, but it's having a clear and well thought through roadmap to execute on your ESG strategy. And targets need to be there. They need to be stretching, but ultimately they need to be deliverable with clear staging posts and, and gateways so you can progress against your targets and you can therefore be measured against them. And I thought a really good quote, which um, I heard from the CEO of Smurfit Kappa, uh, the, the paper-based packaging uh, business that, you know, that really takes this very seriously, is really expanding and evolving, evolving its product sector to become far more sustainable and embracing circular economy principles, is they came out with this quote that says, sustainability creates value and is a competitive advantage. We use our resources to work with customers and suppliers growing theirs and our business. And I thought that's a really nice quote because it encapsulates what ESG and sustainability is all about. It's thinking about not just your own business, but actually who do you interact with? Who do you work with? And it's a symbiotic relationship. So everyone works together for the greater good uh, and ultimately, hopefully, you know, achieving their objectives. So I thought that was quite a nice quote. Yeah, that does um, summarise it quite nicely, doesn't it? Um, and just to expand on your point around authenticity, obviously it is really important and there are concerns in the industry about whether these companies are just paying lip service. We've seen this in, uh, real growth in interest and demand for higher ESG credentials. But how, how seriously do you think boards are taking this? I think they're taking it really seriously. Uh, and I think, as I said a moment ago, you know, the last 12 to 24 months in particular is where the momentum's really gathered pace. Uh, and, and it's amazing how many boards, you know, want to talk about ESG, you know, all the way from the FTSE 100 down into the uh, into the annual share. Uh, it's, it's such an important issue. And, you know, many boards are forming ESG or sustainability committees with a mixture of exec and non-exec representation, which is great. You know, many remuneration committees are starting to introduce ESG linked performance as part of the uh, management incentive plans. Uh, and if they haven't done it yet, they're certainly thinking about it. So, that, so that's great and really adds to the sort of authenticity piece and is something that investors like to see. And look, certainly across our 200 odd client base, you know, we're having a lot, a lot of meetings with boards and management teams about, about this issue. And I'd probably say last year it was all around education and the kind of high level concepts, whereas this year, it's all around getting into the nitty gritty of, okay, how do we deliver on these things? How do we best communicate them to the market? And from our perspective, what's really interesting is to help companies come up with a really sensible ESG strategy that works for them. And then intertwining that with the investment case or equity story so that we can present it to the market in, in, a, in a way that resonates with investors. Um, but we're certainly having a lot of conversations with boards on this. And also investors themselves are having a lot of engagement with companies. And we always say to our boards, look, you know, you should look at your, you know, your top two or three shareholders. You know, you should cert certainly reach out to them, whether that's part of a formal stakeholder engagement exercise or actually just a more informal discussion outside of results season to talk about, you know, what are the issues and trends that the investors are seeing, you know, across their sector and, and for the company. And that's a really good way of getting insight as to how your shareholders are thinking about your company and what are the issues that are, that are coming ahead mm. okay great and i mean yeah as we've seen all of this um growth the companies are, are getting to grips with how the best way to disclose their uh, esg reporting or esg 
credentials and there's we've 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 done written lots of stories this year on the problems of ESG data and then we've we're now in a position where there are so many frameworks to report and it's just instead of trying to make things clearer it's, I, I feel like it's making things more confusing because everybody's using different frameworks so mm. what do you ask for in terms of ESG ESG disclosure from the companies and is there a particular framework that you prefer? It's a really great question. I wish there was a one-size-fits-all framework, but um, <laughs> sadly there isn't. And look, it's a it's a question that we get a, get asked a lot, and I think it's something that's quite overwhelming um, for companies. You know, even even the larger, more sophisticated ones where they have dedicated internal resource and teams, you know, to deal with this day in day out. And probably TCFD is a great example of that. It's an absolutely fantastic regime. Uh, that's obviously being adopted uh, commonplace in the UK, which is fantastic. Uh, but a lot of companies at the moment really grappling with how they're going to report under TCFD uh, in the 2022 you know, annual report cycle. Um, so just a good example of a fantastic regime that's as clear and concise as you're probably going to get in terms of an ESG disclosure framework. Well, obviously, it's a large framework. But even now, sophisticated companies are really grappling with how they're going to report under the regime. But I think what it ultimately comes down to is, again, it's the, it's the materiality, authenticity and deliverability. Mm. And you're having really clear, concise communications on the areas that matter to you and your business and stakeholders is what's vital and makes the difference. Uh, and this needs to be brought out as part of a company's core, mes core messaging and strategy. You know, so, for example, as part of you know, a company results presentation, you know, they can talk about what are the issues and experiences that are affecting them short and longer term? You know, how are they positioned? How are they investing to become more sustainable to protect the downside, but also capitalize on the upside? So it's part of that core messaging. Uh, I think when you get that right, that's what investors really like to see because they get the sense that actually this company knows what it's doing. It's thinking short, medium, and long term, and therefore it's best placed and hopefully over time will outperform. So you don't necessarily need to report under complicated frameworks, you know, to get the biggest bang for the buck. As long as you're clear in your messaging and it's authentic, uh, investors will give you credit for that. Now, I think clearly, you know, having a good website with, with sustainability disclosures and background information that augments what's in the annual report is really important. And certainly over the last year or two, we've seen some really good strides forward in terms of what, what companies are doing doing on that front uh, and investors really appreciate it. So, you know, outside of results season, they quite often go into that part of the website and have a look at what, what companies are doing and what they're disclosing. So, you know, and that really builds on, uh, you know, the trend that's happening across the market, which is more and more sustainability reports and, you know, ESG briefing documents, which we certainly recommend are a good thing to do, but only really once you've done the groundwork and you've got all the reporting and the disclosure in place to be able to tell a good story and put all the data data out there. It's one of those things where I don't think you should run before you can walk and strive to do a 100-page sustainability report when you've only just set out on your ESG journey. That's uh, some very good advice there, I think. Don't run before you can walk. Um, well, we've certainly noticed the, a number of sustainability reports being put in front of us by asset managers saying this is the, their new report that they'll be doing on an annual basis. So, yeah, it's good to see these mm. um, improvements being being made um, and this is two reports are really they're, they're, they're really good they're really helpful um, mm. and I think investors appreciate them 
and I think as you, Natalie, you've covered on, on many of your, your sessions, you know, investors use a huge array of data sets and third-party information sources to sort of piece together the puzzle and how they view a stock from a sort of ESG quality perspective. Um, and having that additional disclosure is definitely helpful. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the core messaging. Um, and I'd probably say in terms of the sort of must-have disclosures, that, that we're starting to see across the market that investors are really looking for colour on is, is, I would say, certainly net zero targets and pathway is a biggie, just given the issue of climate change and how investors themselves have to report uh, on their own portfolios in terms of carbon intensity. And, you know, earlier this year, you know, you've got funds such as Schroeder's writing to all their FTSE 350 companies saying they have to adopt, you know, a net zero strategy or put one in place by the end of this year. So, so you're really upping the ante in that regard. I think science-based targets is another one, which is a really important framework to validate a company's emission reduction plan. You know, I think a thousand odd companies are signed up at the moment. Another 800 companies are going through the process to get their targets accredited. And it's something that I hear from a lot of investors to say, look, we really like our companies when they're ready and they've got the data and they've got the planning and thinking done. As part of going net zero, we'd really like them to sign to sign up to science-based targets because it really is a big a big tick in the box, and it really validates that a company is thinking thinking about the issues in the right way. Uh, and then the third one I'd say that, that we're hearing and seeing quite a lot is social economic impact. So mm -hmm. you know how companies are starting to measure and quantify uh, how they are impacting you know their local communities and local economies from a sort of social benefit perspective and obviously getting third party help to do that but that's something where as an investor it's quite valuable to sort of actually see okay how is my how is my company generating profits but actually how is it benefiting the local community and, and operations in, in which it works uh, and, and it's something that's pretty valuable. So there definitely has been a increasing focus on that that social element um, we, we're seeing that in, in across lots of companies um, and you mentioned before that your focus is on house building and the construction sector, including REITs. So can you explain where that sector is in terms of its transition to net zero? Mm, sure. So, you know, the built environment, it's, it's a very energy and carbon intensive sector. It's around 40% of global emissions. When you look at the embodied carbon in the materials and construction processes of buildings and also the emissions from these buildings during their life cycle, uh, and most of that sits within scope three emissions or, or the supply chain. So, you know, it's a really important sector in terms of helping the UK to decarbonise and hit, hit its net zero targets. And, you know, the REITs, as an example, they've actually led the charge uh, on this. And a number of REITs have already come out with net zero targets and frameworks. They typically target between 2030 and 2040 as a sort of striking zone for going net zero. Most of them have signed up to science-based targets. Uh, in fact, Landsec, I think, was the first REIT uh, to sign up to a, to a science-based target globally. So it just shows you how much the, sort of the UK teams were sort of pioneering uh, pioneering this. Uh, and look, really, a lot of the companies are really focused on um, securing renewable energy generation, you know, whether it's on site or by purchasing 100% you know, green certified electricity. A lot of them set internal carbon prices and, and benchmark themselves on CDP. So they're doing loads of good stuff to really think about it, just given how it's such an important issue as, as a sector because it's so carbon intensive. 
Um, they've really been thinking about this for a few years now. Um, and as a result, if you were to look across the market more holistically in terms of sort of ESG reporting and disclosure, the REITs are, are right up there. You know, they're really focused on green buildings, new net zero developments, you know, and other ESG issues such as biodiversity and that sort of social community impact, uh, which I mentioned before, which, you know, if you're a if you're a developer and you want planning on a site, you know, a lot of the issues that go into that planning process and tender process are around ESG and community impact. Um, so to be successful as a business and win these big schemes and build developments, you know, you have to demonstrate track record and knowledge and data on these key ESG issues. Uh, you know, the, the public sector and local authorities, you know, demand it. Um, so it's really interesting. And you've seen the sector as a whole sort of come together uh, and industry-wide initiatives such as, you know, the UK Green Building Council, the Better Building Partnerships. You know, a lot of these sort of organisations have come together to help create a roadmap for the industry to become net zero. And then you've got, you know, uh, schemes such as the you know, EPRA Sustainability Assessments and GRESBY, which is the Global ESG Benchmark for Real, for real Assets. You know, these helpful third-party uh, schemes that sort of look at and validate and score uh, the REIT industry to make sure they're doing what they're doing and, and they're scoring well. And, it, and it's, so it's, you get quite a lot of data in a sensible way that investors can use to sort of assess the industry. And the good news is that the, the trend is towards better improving data, you know, more efficient and better buildings. So, you know, so the journey has started. But, you know, there's a long way to go. I think at the moment, a lot of investment and technology developments need to come through, particularly to get to zero carbon. I think a lot of businesses in the sector can get to net zero, but what we really want is to go zero in absolute terms. Uh, and I think that's where the next three to four years are going to be really critical in terms of that forward thinking to how you get to zero carbon. Yes, I think it's clear that technology is really going to be um, key to that. So what are you doing at uh, Numis to ensure that you're practicing what you preach? Yeah, sure. Look, like many organisations, ESG is a priority area for us. It's something we feel passionate about. Um, we've been going through an exercise this year to review all our ESG outputs and sort of centralising the function internally. Uh, and we've got an outside firm helping us do that. So we're looking to measure, build, build out our policies and, and, and take more action. Um, and like many, you know, we're on the journey as well. Um, it's something we're committed to and we're hopeful, hopeful we'll be reporting uh, something on this externally sort of sooner rather than later. Uh, we've also got a, a shiny new office that we're moving into in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. Uh, and I know the environmental creds of that building was, was, a, was a key focus for the team in terms of, you know, where we decided to move our new digs to. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's something that as a, as a firm we're really passionate about. Uh, and we've got a lot, of, a lot of youngsters that have joined us in, in recent years as well. And you can just see from the youngsters how passionate they are about ESG as well, so which is really, really interesting. So, um, so yeah. Okay, fantastic. And um, obviously, uh, ESG Clarity, we write about investment management and funds. So I wanted to ask you how you think the asset management companies or the investment management companies are faring in terms of their ESG credentials. Have you seen any big shifts or improvements recently? Yeah, I think like the rest of the market, they're, they're moving on and advancing. Um, I mean, the buy side generally, you know, in terms of how they how they deploy funds and, and in terms of investment strategies, there's a huge spectrum of approach. Um, but one thing is for sure is that some level of ESG integration 
is happening in almost all funds. Um, and, you know, a lot of these strategies have, have been going on for a long time. You know, the likes of Royal London and Lion Trust have been doing sustainable investing for, for a long time. And we think that the, this is only going to accelerate, you know, across the buy side, given, given the regulatory backdrop, given the client interest and underlying inflows of capital into this space. You know, investors are adopting this more and more. Uh, and you can see that from some of the inflow data that, that's going in, into, the, into the sector. Um, and the funds themselves are becoming more sophisticated. Um, they're doing a lot more work, hiring a lot more people um, to, to, in terms of their sustainability and ESG strategies and investment desks. So I think the trend's only going one way. And I think they themselves as businesses, you know, are looking at their own, their own uh, footprint uh, and policies and are, and are trying to be more sustainable as well, that's for sure. Mm, yeah, definitely. And we've, we've certainly seen some more innovative funds um, on ESG clarity. I think we had an impact ETF recently and lots of SDG funds coming to the market as well. So, yeah, it's mm. good to see that that variety is coming through. Um, and finally, I wanted to ask you what your predictions are for the, the coming years in terms of companies meeting their net zero targets, being more responsible. And do you have any concerns for the future? Um, I think we believe. I think the structural tailwinds for ESG investments on the buy side, and from a company perspective, you know, companies considering sustainability and corporate responsibility. We think those tailwinds are only going to intensify. That's going to be driven by government and policy push, investor demand, and also actually just what's happening in the real world in terms of having to decarbonize and make things as efficient as possible, especially as resources become more and more precious and we build back greener post-COVID. Um, so we think it's something that, that's going to intensify. Uh, so we think that the outlook's positive, change is happening. I think we're still early on in terms of this journey. You know, a lot of companies are relatively early on in terms of their planning and the journey that they're undertaking, but, but the good news is that, that it started and I remember, you know, if you wind, rewind a couple of years, probably what one in 10 companies talked about ESG or sustainability or CSR in some form or another at results season. Whereas, you know, earlier this year, it was probably one in two, maybe one in three. So it just shows you, you know, how much, how much has changed. But I think what's important mm. at the end of the day is the companies don't just talk the talk, but they need to walk the walk. Uh, and mm. I think as the industry matures and data becomes more reliable, and, and more forthcoming, you'll be able to see how companies are really benchmarking, you know, against the targets that they've set out. And, you know, climate change is a great, is obviously the issue, is the key issue at the moment, and net zero targets fall within that. Uh, lots of companies coming out with net zero, you know, probably some more credible than others, particularly when it comes to sort of encapsulating and, and capturing scope three emissions. Uh, I mean, I've got a client who came out with results in February who are really very much an ESG focused stock, really take it seriously right throughout the whole organization. Uh, and they've set a net zero target, but in terms of their scope three, they only looked at emissions that were within their sort of operational control. So they sort of acknowledged and said, look, we'd love to be fully scope three, but at the moment we can only give sensible targets and data that, that surround our operational emissions. So. The next chapter will be looking farther and wider across the value chain and in a year hopefully in a year's time we'll be able to capture those emissions into our net zero plans as well so it's a good example of it's a company that's been open and honest about its position mm -hmm. still set some quite stringent targets 
um, but it's the start of a journey and there's more work to do. Um, so look, so I think we're positive on the outlook, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done across the market. You know, a lot of a lot of investment needs to go into, from our sector's perspective, into sort of technology and processes to make buildings net zero. Um, and it's you know it's an evolving landscape. I think a lot a lot more to come. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, I think you've um, sort of delivered a really important message um, throughout this chat about um, being open and honest, like you just said, about where where companies are in their journey and not uh, that that stuck with me that not running before you you can walk so yeah I think that's got to be the way forward isn't it companies being frank about what the position they are on their journey and what they're doing to take the next steps agreed yeah 100% definitely great well um thank you so much for your time today it's been really interesting talking to you no thank you for having me Nathalie that was great and uh, it's fantastic and Keep up the good work. Your publication is fantastic. So as readers of our Sustainable Citation series will know, I recently embarked on a wine tour around the UK, which included a visit to Sedlescombe Organic Vineyard. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Emma Clark, who is the Marketing Manager of MDCV UK. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about the vineyard and the organic and sustainable UK wine industry. So it's great to speak to you today, Emma. Well, thank you very much for having me on. So Settlescombe is an organic and biodynamic vineyard. What does that mean and how does this contribute to a more sustainable wine industry? Sure. Well, we're actually England's oldest organic um, wine estate. Um, I'm very, very proud of that. Um, but essentially what, what it means is organic, um, I suppose the difference between organic and, and conventional wine um, winemaking or, or vineyard practices is, is all to do with the soils and the vines of the vineyard. So essentially, when you're organic, you are not permitted to use sort of chemical uh, chemicals, so fertilisers, herbicides, pesticides, that kind of thing. It's all about keeping soils sort of healthy and, and fertile, but using sort of um, your, your natural um, surroundings. So whether that's composting um, or using sort of cover crops, um, etc. So, um, so, so that's that's sort of I suppose the, the difference between a, a conventional um, vineyard and, and an organic. Obviously, what that does mean is that you are then sort of limited, I guess, in when it comes to sort of diseases that, that can affect sort of vines. But um, what, what we're finding and, and what many organic vineyards um, are doing, including Sedlescombe, is actually moving um, our, our actual vines themselves to a, a more sort of a disease resistant um, varietal. So it means basically it's, it's helping us um, in terms of actually how we sort of manage our, our vineyards. So we don't have to worry so much about um, such intense um, uh, effects from, from potential diseases. So that's, that's kind of sort of organic um, in a nutshell. But, but biodynamic, um, it basically takes it one step further. So it's it by definition, by biodynamic wine is is also organic, um, and you, and you obviously have, as I said, these sort of standards that you need to maintain to be organic. But with biodynamic, you have an additional set of standards um, laid out by the um, the Demeter Association, um, and and they um, they basically 
um, are the certifying body for, for, for biodynamic products. Um, but, but biodynamic sort of farming is, is founded um, on the principles um, uh, developed by an Austrian man um, called Rudolf Steiner um, in the, the mid-1920s. And, it, and it, is, it is built on the principles of, of organic farming, but it's, it's, it goes one step further. It's, it's not just about um, <clears throat> sort of the, the land itself, but it's actually the sort of connection um, of the land to the, the surroundings. So um, sort of the astrological um, impacts and, and also uh, to a degree, um, the sort of spiritual connectivity between humans and, and the land as well. So, you, you know, you have sort of practical applications um, or, or preparations as we call, uh, as we call them, which are, um, I guess, kind of, um, in a, in a simplistic way, sort of rituals that, that, that happen each year. And, and that's all to do with sort of increasing, um, I guess, the fertility of the, the soil itself, the nutrient availability. So um, people who may have heard a little bit about biodynamics may have heard of, of some of the, the sort of preparations that, that we do, um, things, uh, popular ones that, that people often hear of are things like uh, cow horns that are stuffed with organic uh, manure, basically, they're buried um, in the soil. And the, the principles behind this is it's essentially that it's believed that the, the cow horns themselves attract um, the sun's energy whilst the cow is alive. Um, and, and these cows um, that the horns come from, they've died naturally. They've spent their whole lives um, on sort of on roaming the land. So they haven't been farmed. And the idea is that, that all of that sort of energy, natural energy, is then transferred um, into the soil. So it's very sort of nutrient rich, if you like, as, as a result. But there are more sort of simple um, preparations like burying a stinging nettle um, in the soil for up to a year, because that's said to actually bring intelligence to the soil. So um, clever, clever farming, I suppose, in a way. Um, but it's it's a little bit it's a little bit sort of more than just these preparations themselves. It's actually sort of thinking about the connection of the soil and the vines to, to the land. So, you know, we, every couple of weeks, we turn our soil over in, in between the vines. Um, we alternate our rows that, that are ploughed so that we ensure that the soil is always fresh and, and the weeds are, um, they're not able to, to sort of grow. Um, and, and we're very sort of conscious of, of um, effects of the um, surrounding environment on our, our vines themselves. So to, to give you a bit of an example, things like um, or fruits like grapes and strawberries they tend to have really high absorbency levels so if anything is sprayed in or around or nearby or within the air nearby it's actually absorbed by these um these types of, of fruits so um our sort of uh, our, our fellow um, grape growers in australia um often suffer when there's wildfires um, that happen because what happens is the smoke actually in the area causes something called smoke taint because it's absorbed into the skins of the grapes and it actually does transfer into the wine. So we're very sort of aware of our surroundings. And, and as I said, obviously, we don't spray um, and we're, we're very sort of conscious of, of anything um, local to us that, that could possibly affect it to try and sort of limit, uh, limit the impact on the, on the end wine itself. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, biodynamic and, and organic um, but it's, it's really about understanding the lay of the land and, and being aware of your surroundings and and, and ultimately um, our impact as, as humans on on the land.
um, and actually what, what we're doing. So, so being very sort of conscious of that, that we're not, I guess, interfering, we're leaving it in a, in a, good, in a good state, in a good condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem like there's that dual um, benefit, I guess, of being aware of the surroundings for the purpose of making good wine, right? But then also uh, not, you know, being a contributor to um, any kind of harmful industry, right? So something. Abso absolutely, yeah. It's 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 about finding a balance, isn't it? You know, we we want to make great wines, and um, absolutely, we want people to enjoy them. Um, but we also want to ensure that what we do in order to achieve that outcome doesn't detrimentally um, impact the, the land uh, around us because we want to continue to, to make wine for, for many years to come. Tell us a bit about the UK wine industry in general. I mean, you mentioned fires in Australia. I mean, you know, climate change has all been some of the devastating effects. What, what are the impacts are? Uh, of these on UK wines and how can the industry in general be more sustainable or um, yeah, move towards more sustainable ways of life? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we're all very, very aware and, 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 and totally acknowledge the, the sort of de very devastating effects of, of climate change in, in general um, on the world as a whole. I suppose for the UK wine industry, in, in many ways actually, <laughs> climate change does give us some positive outcomes from a, a winemaking perspective because um, you know essentially uh, you know even a, a degree um, increase in, in temperature does give us um, slightly more favorable grape growing conditions so ultimately we will have a higher output in terms of, of production and, and quality of the, the grapes that are actually produced which has a, a, a knock-on um, positive effect on, on trading so whether that's we are then able to um, increase the amount of exports um, we have as, as a wine industry or actually increase imports due to um, uh, in, sorry increase the domestic consumption so you know climate change is devastating and and we have to be aware of that in terms of, of sort of our impact on the environment and, and what we're doing. Um, so actually in terms of sort of managing our, our, um, our land, we, um, we are acutely aware of that. Um, we as a business actually have recently employed a conservation manager um, whose role it is to look after that, the land, um, looking at it from an environmental and an ecological standpoint. Um, and we employ a number of sort of techniques to, to minimize the impact um, on our environment. So we, as I said, you know, we compost a lot of organic waste, we harvest our rainwater, um, we do a lot of sort of things like heating of our sites using natural sources, so ground source heat pumps. But on the flip side, the um, obviously the positive outcome, as I said, is, you know, increased temperatures means that we are able to actually grow um, grow better quality grapes and grow um, in, in terms of, of sort of volume as well. So production does go up. So if people are looking to be 
or to live more sustainably? Uh, what kind of things can people be doing then? To... From a sustainability perspective, it's it's buy local, drink English, you know, come come and come and try our wines, um, support the local growers, and whether that is in the wine industry or, or just in general um, farming, um, you know, there's there's amazing produce on our doorstep. Because our our readers um, and our listeners from the UK and European investment industry. Have you got any ideas or, or, or thoughts about what the finance industry can do to better support sustainable wines or, or organic wines, but a sustainable wine industry? I think ultimately what it comes down to is, is recognise actually the, the initiatives and the work that is being done to build the, the English wine industry. Um, there are so many opportunities to, to support upcoming projects. Um, actually um you know get on board with um with wineries that that have you know huge potential to to sort of grow and and adapt and and produce um you know really very very good good quality wine i mean uh, you know as a as a, an industry that um you know really excels in in english sparkling wine um particularly talking about the sparkling wine category we know that that we have um you know fantastic um soil and we are benefiting from as i said you know those increased temperatures we see a lot of the champenoise houses actually coming over and and investing in our land so actually what we would love to be doing is you know sort of i guess working with with you know the investment industry and actually sort of uh, you know seeing the opportunities come to, to come to fruition you know further Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today, Emma. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me on. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.